Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, hey, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Guy Marzarati. And I'm Katie Orr. We're in today on The Breakdown for Scott Schaefer and Marisa Lagos. And with just weeks until ballots go out in the recall election, we're joined by one of the top Republicans hoping to replace Governor Gavin Newsom. That's right. Kevin Kiley is with us. He represents parts of Placer, Sacramento and El Dorado counties in the state assembly. Kevin Kiley, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thanks. Great to be with you. Well, great to have you with us, and we'll try to get a number of the Republican challengers uh, to Governor Gavin Newsom on the show in the coming weeks. I think we should start with what's become the biggest story in the state over the last couple days, the response to this latest surge in COVID-19 cases, this time largely driven by unvaccinated residents. So if you were governor, how would Governor Kevin Kiley be dealing with this latest increase uh, in infections? Well, I'd look at what's worked in other states and model our state's approach after them. You know, we have in California uh, been uh, the most restrictive. Uh, We've had the highest level of government control of any state in the country. In terms of all 50 states, we've had the harshest lockdowns. In terms of all 50 states, we've been slowest to get our kids back to school. And what have we gotten in return? Well, we've actually had some of the worst public health outcomes, too, when measured by excess mortality. And so I would model our approach after the paradigm of, of trust and, you know, and education and information that has been successful in other states where you give folks every opportunity uh, to, you know, know how to protect themselves. And frankly, by this point, we are more familiar with this disease than maybe any that we've ever seen. People are well aware of what the risks of uh, this virus are and how to protect themselves. And so I would uh, place trust in individual citizens to make the decisions that are right for them and their families. But can I just push back a little bit? Don't you think it goes a little bit beyond personal responsibility since if you don't get vac, not saying that you are, but if someone does not get vaccinated, that could potentially hurt me and my children who like can't be vaccinated. Well, I mean, people, uh, you know, can make the choice for themselves as to whether they are the, they and their their families do want to get vaccinated. And, you know, we've had at this point, it's available, uh, you know, pretty much everyone who wants it, with some exceptions, is able to get it and they know how to protect themselves. And people also know, you know, uh, what other measures they can take to protect themselves. And so I think that, uh, you know, there's there's simply no real evidence at this point uh, that uh, the, some of the interventions that are being proposed, like, uh, you know, uh, vaccine passports or things like that actually even get us 
us any mileage in terms of, of public health. And then when you weigh that against sort of the fundamental notions of privacy and individual liberty that are at stake, I think that, you know, again, uh, we should look to what has been successful in other states where we uh, provide information, we provide, we have a, a relationship of trust between government and citizens and not a relationship of simply uh, of mandates and, and, and imposing choices on people. Let's talk about that personal liberty piece as it relates to the vaccine. Look, the governor has tried encouraging people to get vaccinated. He's tried rewards. There was that lottery uh, people could enter. Now he's, you know, putting in some uh, requirements for some public workers, health workers. There's been some of your colleagues in the legislature who have said it's time now to start mandating vaccines uh, for Californians. What's your take on that? I disagree with that 100 percent. I think that, you know, uh, I, and I have as a member of the legislature, I've done everything I can to make people aware of how they can uh, get the vaccine and, uh, you know, and uh, as to who's eligible at any given time. And, and more than that, I fought back against this governor's attempts to cast doubt on the vaccine. Uh, if you remember uh, back uh, last year, he actually said that we can't take the FDA word uh, on it as to whether the vaccine is safe. And this drew a sharp rebuke from the chair of the United States Senate Health Committee, who said that uh, Governor Newsom was costing lives because he was casting doubt on the vaccine and was casting doubt on the career scientists at the FDA. And then, you know, when it came time to actually make the vaccine available to the public, uh, California was the slowest state in the country uh, initially when it came to the rollout. We were 50th out of 50 in terms of the percentage of our, uh, you know, allotted, uh, you know, dosages that were being administered. And this was at the point in time when, you know, it was most crucial because uh, the case rates were highest, the death rates were highest, and yet California was literally last uh, in the country. And so I have not only taken very proactive steps to make sure that this information is available to my constituents, but I've tried to, you know, get uh, a better response on the part of our state government when this governor has led us astray. So, as we mentioned, you are in the race to replace Governor Gavin Newsom should he be recalled. Um, throughout the pandemic, you know, we've seen Newsom's uh, approval rating, you know, ebb and flow, but generally he gets pretty high levels of support. So if there are just about, you know, 40 percent of voters who dislike Newsom, what is your case to the rest of California for why he should be recalled and why you should be the one to replace him? I'd say first, you know, the numbers actually show that right now the support for the recall is growing. We had an, uh, a poll from the L.A. Times just the other day that shows it's at 47 percent right now. And what we're finding is that the more people pay attention, the more people are tuning into what's going on, the more likely they are to support the recall. Not only that, a poll also showed this last week that uh, 58 percent of voters say that it's time for a change of leadership by at least 2022. And so, you know, there is majority approval for a change in leadership in California right now, despite the fact that the deck, the deck has really been stacked against the recall, all with $36 million in funding with special interest groups, with attempts by the legislature and, and Governor Newsom to change the rules uh, to his advantage by moving the election date. But to your question as to why does he deserve to be recalled, well, the overarching reason is that he has abused the public trust in really unthinkable ways. This governor took extraordinary emergency powers during the COVID-19 pandemic and abused them for personal political gain, use them in order to reward the powerful special interests that are responsible for him, him being in office. And, you know, maybe the, the most egregious example of that is what he's done with our schools. He's kept kids out of school longer than any state in defiance of the scientific consensus and defiance of the public health consensus of child welfare advocates. And he did so because his biggest campaign donor, the teachers unions, that's what they wanted. And what do you know? The last two days, they've funneled $2 million more to his campaign to defeat the recall. The reason I think that, you know, um, that, my, that I'm running, I actually got involved in the, in the movement for the recall 
not as a candidate at first, but just to support this movement of citizens. Because I've been fighting for change at the Capitol for five years. I've been fighting for the corruption of our Capitol for five years. I've been fighting the dominance of special interests in our Capitol for five years. And I came to see the recall as bringing a whole different element to the equation. And that's the voice of the people of California putting their mark directly on our government. And so I'm trying to carry that torch forward. And having spent five years at the Capitol, I know exactly how broken our state government is. I know exactly what the problems are and how I'd go about fixing them on day one. I just want to clarify on that poll you were referencing. That's from the Berkeley inter- mm-hmm. uh, IGS poll. And that was actually when they looked at the most likely voters, that was the 47 percent who sure. backed in. And if they looked at the broader picture, it was uh, just 36 percent. So, I mean, you can make the argument that those are the people they think are most likely to vote. So obviously it could be a sign of concern for Newsom. Sure. But that's what. Yeah. And I think I mean, it just shows turnout, I think, in this election is going to be key. Um, everybody's going to uh, get a ballot in the mail, but that's obviously no guarantee for, for a large turnout. I did want to ask, you have written the book uh, on, on recalling Newsom. It's called uh, Recall Gavin Newsom. You kept it simple with the title. Um, but, <laughs> Not super creative. <laughs> but but I, I was interesting because, you know, at the beginning, you talk about, you know, the, the origins, kind of this, the beginning of this recall petition. You call yourself recall reluctant mm-hmm. in the book. You said when the petition started in early 2020, you weren't immediately on board with it. What was that reluctance about? Well, look, I'm not someone who says we should just be doing recalls all the time and and throwing people out in the middle of their terms. Generally, I think that if we're talking about sort of the standard conflicts of politics, standard political issues, then I wouldn't support a recall. Uh, But in this case, I laid out three criteria for what would cause me as, you know, an elected official myself to join with the citizens who are making this movement happen. And I said, number one, there needs to be an abuse of the public trust, which is what we've just been talking about. Number two, there needs to be a last resort. I tried in every way I could to work with and to get this governor to govern in the public interest. I gave a speech on the floor of the state assembly on March 17th. I was the only legislator to really do so and address the challenges ahead of us, March 17th, 2020, as this all began. And I said, we need to trust in Governor Newsom's leadership and listen to his guidance. I said, the partisan rituals of ordinary politics have no place in these extraordinary times. And yet almost immediately, this governor had a COVID response that was political through and through. Two weeks after that speech, he announced that he was going to use the coronavirus as an opportunity for, quote, a new progressive era. And so the third thing, uh, the third criteria is that the the recall should respond to a need for fundamental change. And this goes back to the points you're raising as far as the polling, and you're talking about likely voters. Fine, let's forget about polling with respect to this specific election. Let's look what people are saying about the quality of life in California. Two-thirds of residents, nearly two-thirds in one poll, said that they think kids growing up in California today will be worse off than their parents. 53% of voters in one poll said they're thinking of leaving. Last year, we reached a tipping point where our state's population declined for the first time in our 170-year history. 182,000 more people left than came here. So the people of California know that our quality of life has been declining. And what we've seen in the COVID era is it's really connected the dots for a lot of people and is doing so more as this election draws closer, that the reason our quality of life is declining is because our state government is broken. Uh, Elizabeth Warren just came out uh, with a new ad uh, supporting Governor Gavin Newsom against the recall, saying that the uh, Republicans are abusing the recall process. And what's your reaction to that? Well, it's absurd. I mean, uh, let's ta- let's take a look at uh, at the issue of schools. Uh, as we were talking about, this governor inflicted untold harm on a generation of young people. Well, his own kids were in private school, so he knew full well there was no good reason for kids to be at home 
And yet he did this. He lowered the life expectancy of kids in California, according to studies by the Journal of the American Medical Association, just so that he could keep getting, stay in the good graces and keep getting campaign contributions from our state's biggest, biggest special interest group. That is the textbook definition of corruption with consequences like we've never seen in an action on the part of a state elected official. And so if that is not grounds for removal, I don't know what is. But I also want to point out that someone like Elizabeth Warren, she doesn't live here. She's not part of the state. And that's the strategy on the part of this governor is to make the election about anything other than his failings. And so he's trying to nationalize it. He's trying to create, he's trying to scapegoat people. He's, you know, spreading malicious mistruths about the people who made this happen, all for the purpose of taking attention away from the fundamental failures of our state government and of his governorship in particular. Okay. So saying Republicans have abused this recall process, you know, I think there's, it's hard to argue that given, you know, they've, the supporters of the recall have kind of played by the rules that exist. Right. But there are a lot of people arguing we need to reevaluate these rules as when it comes to recalling a governor. Do you think when this is all said and done, the state should reevaluate its recall process? There was polling this week from the PPIC that said a lot of people support maybe a higher signature threshold, mm -hmm. perhaps limiting recalls to when there have been, you know, illegal activity or other malfeasance by the governor, kind of a, a strict criteria. What do you make of that? Well, what you've seen actually is that our political class has messed with the recall process repeatedly, all for the purpose of making recalls more difficult. A few years ago, when Senator Josh Newman was being recalled, and by the way, uh, legislators on both sides of the aisle uh, have been have faced recalls. I believe it was Jeff Denham who just a few, oh, maybe a decade ago uh, faced a recall himself. But they changed the rules in the middle of the process to drag it out. And then we saw just a few weeks ago, on the eve of this recall vote, uh, Governor Newsom signed a bill to change the date of his own recall for the explicit purpose of changing it to a time when he thought he had a better chance uh, of winning. And so, uh, you know, if we talk about reforming the recall process, I'm not sure that we need to reform it in a way that gives, you know, politicians an even greater ability to stop movements to remove them. I don't think there needs to be any subject matter limitation because that goes against the, direct, the, the whole purpose of a recall is it should be up to voters to decide uh, for themselves, you know, when someone needs to go. And, you know, I think that it's actually a very important uh, vehicle is to give voters the opportunity uh, to take matters into their own hands. And I think that if we had a political class that actually served the people of our state, then you wouldn't see this need to turn to a recall. But it's simply because it's, it's entirely because we have now a political class that is so insular, that has shut the public out of our state capital in every way possible. I see it every day as a member of this legislature, the way that we limit access, we limit participation on the part of the people of our state. So I think that this recall uh, can shift that whole paradigm. And I would hope that the ultimate outcome can be to return to the idea of government of, by, and for the people, so we don't need to turn to recalls in the future. Right. Well, there's certainly no stopping this uh, particular uh, recall election from going forward. Last day to vote is September 14th. You're one of the candidates running to replace, potentially replace the governor. We're going to talk a little bit more about your life story, what got you into politics. But we're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we will continue our conversation with Assemblyman Kevin Kiley. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free.
Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Guy Marzarati. Alongside Katie Orr, Scott Schaefer, and Marisa Lagos are taking a well-deserved vacation this week. And we're talking with Kevin Kiley, a Republican state assemblyman and one of the 40-plus candidates on the ballot to potentially replace Governor Gavin Newsom in the September 14th recall election. So, Assemblyman Kiley, we want to always like to talk to our guests a little bit about their life story, what got them into politics. We read that you were a valedictorian at Granite Bay uh, <laughs> High School. Tell us a little bit about, do you remember, did you give a speech? Do you remember what that was about? And just, I, I did give a speech, yeah. that's. I haven't been asked about that in a long time. What, <laughs> would you remember the highlights? Uh, yeah, I do. I think my theme was, uh, you know, uh, sort of opportunity and responsibility about sort of, you know, the opportunities that our generation had in the world that we were being ushered into. That was kind of like in the early stages of the digital age and the world was really changing rapidly around us. And I tried to kind of talk about the opportunities we had, but then also sort of the the responsibilities that were uh, incumbent upon us as well. So did you grow up in a politically active family? Did your parents have strong political views or is this new? Uh, this is new. No one in my family has ever done politics before. What what spurred you to get into it? Yeah, so I guess I had kind of dabbled in it a little when I was younger. Actually, my one real prior political experience, interestingly enough, was I was a uh, an intern after my freshman year of college in uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's office uh, pretty soon after that recall, uh, about six months after. In the cigar uh, lounge? Or what? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I could sense. see. I had a view of the cigar lounge. I was like two offices down from his inside the horseshoe. The horseshoe, for folks who don't know our capital, is kind of like the set of the governor's uh, offices there on the first floor. And so I was like two doors down from where he was. And so I kind of had a, uh, you know, a firsthand view of, you know, this effort to get a government up and running after, a, you know, kind of unexpected change in personnel. And so I have been thinking a little bit about that, you know, you know, as, as far as what steps you need to take uh, in a similar situation here. But I had, uh, you know, other than that, I worked as a, as a high school teacher uh, in inner city L.A. I had been a, an attorney. I defended the Constitution our courts. I'd been a prosecutor. And so I had kind of gotten a window into the receiving end of state policy in a lot of different ways when it comes to education, when it comes to public safety, when it comes to the way we treat our small businesses. Uh, as well as just simply living in California and seeing a lot of the problems building us up around us. And so, you know, I got involved uh, because precisely because I thought we needed a change of direction as a state. And so uh, in 2016, I ran for the legislature, never having run for anything before. It was kind of a crowded field as 11 candidates, the most competitive race in the state that year. But I, I got some lucky breaks and we had a really strong grassroots campaign and, uh, and managed to get elected. And I've been serving for about the last five years. We want to ask about that experience you had at Manuel Arts High School 
school in LA. I think it was Teach for America. Is yes, that right? Yes, that's right. And you know, education's been perhaps the issue you focused on more than any other in your time mm-hmm. uh, in the assembly. What was that experience like? What did you take away from it? Well, I had a tremendous experience. Uh, I taught 10th graders uh, at a school in uh, in inner city LA. I taught 10th grade English. Um, and, uh, you know, I also uh, started a debate team there and we traveled around the state and we could be different tournaments. A lot of those kids have gone on to great colleges. So I had a, a really amazing experience. But I also, you know, saw how much our public education system is failing a lot of our kids. Uh, you know, the 10th graders that I taught would on average be at a fifth grade reading level uh, when they came into my class. And so that was maybe the leading issue uh, that I tried to address in my first campaign and when I got into the legislature uh, is to try to expand educational opportunity uh, and educational equity. Now, Teach for America, its mission statement is to is that one day every student in America will have the chance at an excellent education. It's dedicated to closing achievement gaps. To give you some sense of the battle that I've been up against in our legislature, you actually have had a bill that's introduced on multiple occasions to ban Teach for America from California, a program that is specifically designed to recruit uh, you know, high-performing uh, recent college graduates and send them to teach in sort of underserved uh, areas. And, you know, that is sort of uh, of a piece with the general tenor of education policy in California is that it has been working against the kids who need help the most. And so I think that that is, uh, you know, it's one of the issues that I've continued to work on in the legislature. I think it's going to be a big issue in this election as well. So you have made the case that Governor Newsom has kind of enacted one man rule during this pandemic. And, you know, specifically when it comes to schools, you know, mandating masks and schools being shut down. But on schools, he's actually opted for local control. I mean, like given districts some leeway to you know, open or close. That's why we have a patchwork around around the state. So I guess how do you balance those arguments? He can't be like a dictator, but also allow lo- local control, right? Well, no, he has not, actually. Uh, a year ago, last July, uh, he issued a school closure order and was only one of, I believe, five uh, governors in the country who had a statewide school closure order. This was last July. He had previously, in fact, just a few days before, said that every uh, district is is unique, and so we need to allow for local flexibility. But then the CTA, uh, the big teachers union, his biggest campaign donor, did a full court press. He did a 180. I had said before his announcement, because uh, his uh, education advisor had reached out to me, and I had said, look at the science. The science says schools need to be open for the fall. But then he did a shutdown order that kept almost, you know, well over 95%, I believe, of the kids uh, in California uh, without access to in-person instruction. Uh, and then, you know, in and then so let's fast forward. And, you know, California is 50th out of 50 in getting kids back to the classroom. You know, vast majority, and we're well, well behind other states. And other states, kids are uh, in school full time starting last fall. No problems at all. They've done no worse than us in terms of public health outcomes. Uh, but then in the in the spring, you did have governors saying, all right, well, enough is enough. We need to just actually get order our, our schools to open. Uh, the governor of the other West Coast states in Oregon and Washington did precisely that. Yet Gavin Newsom refused to do so, oh, saying, oh, no, it should be up to districts, even though the previous year he had done an order that didn't leave it up to districts. So he's just saying whatever is necessary to cater to the agenda of, uh, of, of the teachers unions who want the outcome of schools being closed. And he'll give whatever rationale it takes to get there. But there was, you know, districts across the state, even in, in your district, Placer County, schools were open in the fall of 2020. Obviously, districts in like mm-hmm. San Francisco, Oakland, were closed well into 2021. So there was clearly some districts had the ability to go forward and open schools if they wanted to. Are you saying Newsom should have 
overstepped that local authority and said, San Francisco, you have to open? Eventually, the legislature should have done that. Yes, I introduced a uh, an amendment uh, in, I believe it was March of this year, uh, saying that schools need to open because, you know, many were just refusing to do so. I mean, in San Francisco, it's just been a joke. They've been, they even scammed the state by pretending to be open, having two of their 14 high schools offer in-person supervision one day a week simply to claim millions of dollars in state spending. Schools are there to educate kids, to be open. Uh, that's the whole purpose. And so at some point, it became very clear that, you know, this is not optional. This is what schools are supposed to do. However, uh, you know, you say that in the fall, there were some districts like in Placer uh, that were able to open. Yes, within uh, very narrow parameters, uh, the school shutdown order that the governor didn't put in place uh, did allow for openings, but then he kept throwing more and more obstacles in the way of them opening. So we had schools that were, you know, open, they were doing fine. And then suddenly there'd be a new dictate that would come down from the Department of Public Health saying, oh, now it needs to be a certain number of feet between desks without any basis in science. And that throws their entire uh, system out of whack. And so if you talk to the, the district leaders, the school leaders in Placer, in, other, in El Dorado, in other parts of the state that were doing everything in their power to do right by kids, they were constantly having to face uh, the, the obstacles that the state was throwing in their path. But there is kind of this... Uh issue that exists for Republicans. I mean, I talked to some of your colleagues in the legislature who voted for the ultimate school reopening plan in the spring because they said, look, we like this idea of the state sends money down to the to local districts, but let them make the decisions. I mean, ultimately, a core principle of, of conservatism is this local control. And a lot of critics of Newsom and his handling of schools, it's almost the opposite argument, right? Like the governor needed to have more executive authority. I mean, isn't that an issue for Republicans when it comes to schools? you know, going forward, this idea of how much power should Sacramento really have in these decisions? Well, I, I'll, I'll reiterate that the reason the schools were closed is that Newsom ordered them closed. That's why that created the status quo uh, of, of schools being closed. And then it became, uh, you know, the, the burden of inertia became uh, so too powerful to overcome in these enormous districts where the district leaders are captured by the unions as well in a lot of cases. And so that point is very important to emphasize. It was the governor who shut down the schools. That was not a local choice. Uh, he according to his school closure order from July uh, of 2020. Um, but, you know, so then when we have this situation where because of the governor's school closure order, combined with the unwillingness of leaders in some of these large districts to do anything to actually serve kids, at that point, yes, it needed a responsible leadership on the part of our state government would have said, you need to open. Local control does not extend to whether you have school at all. You know, that is a right that's in our state constitution, that kids get access to a high quality education. And that right has been violated. Uh, and in fact, a court just said that the a, a federal constitutional right was violated by this governor's decision to close private schools as well. But when you talk about like the union capturing the government and imposing its will, I mean, we were we are talking about a pandemic that has killed hundreds of thousands of people. Is it so wrong to err on the side of like extreme caution when it comes to our teachers and our kids and keep them, you know, as safe as possible? Well, we didn't do that. The evidence was extremely clear that it was much more dangerous for kids to be out of school than to be in school. And the governor knows that. That's why he sent his own kids to in-person private school. If he truly believed that that was the more dangerous option, would he really have done it for his own family? And you're pursuing reforms to education uh, beyond, you know, this year. I think you're looking at a ballot measure for 2022 regarding right. a, a voucher program. Do you feel like, you know, clearly there were some Democratic or maybe uh, liberal identifying parents, public school parents who were outraged at the ongoing school closures of the last year? 
Do you think there's an appetite among those same parents, though, for a wholesale kind of reform of how we finance public education, which is kind of what you're proposing in the vein of vouchers? I do. And I hear it everywhere I go. And I'm glad that you brought up that this is distinctly multipartisan because people who have suffered uh, under the corrupt policies and our corrupt school closures, uh, it's affect everyone, people from every walk of life, and in particular folks in our underserved communities where kids just kind of fell off the map. A lot of them never even logged into Zoom school. It has absolutely exploded the achievement gaps that were already disgraced wide uh, in California. So the uh, school choice initiative that is taking form for the ballot next year, it would provide a new paradigm uh, where the funding can follow the student. Or if you're a parent who's unhappy with the education your, your, your child is receiving, then you can take a fixed portion of the uh, of the funding that's allotted to them and spend it on qualified education expenses elsewhere, which will not only empower families to do what's right for their own kids and find the best fit for them, but also give incentives to the traditional public schools to, if they're not uh, serving students well, to get their act together in order to retain students, which is something that actually the evidence bears out with respect to the limited forms of school choice we have in California now, uh, like the Districts of Choice program. So uh, if I were elected, you know, having this uh, this initiative waiting in the wings would be crucial to my ability to get uh, action on the part of the legislature. What I'd do immediately, since we have a truncated term if you win the recall, you're only there for about a year before the next election, right. I'd summon a special session of the legislature, which the governor has the power to do under the state constitution. By the time the recall is over, legislature will be adjourned for the year. But I'll summon a special session and I'll throw down the gauntlet and say we need to pass sweeping reform on these key challenging facing the state our failing public schools, homelessness, crime, the soaring cost of living. So that if uh, if the legislature refused to act and kind of remains mired in this era of corruption we're trying to escape from, we can take the issue back to voters in 2022. Well, there's a lot we could keep talking to you about. We just have a few minutes left. So we want to get to one one final question here. You and Doug Osi actually co-own Osi Kylie Cattle. <laughs> <laughs> have you wagered a T-bone on who finishes higher in the recall? He's, he's also on the recall ballot. Yeah, he's right. also on we the recall ballot. Right. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm actually not in the business anymore. I've cashed out of it. I think I made like a thousand bucks. So, you know, big money. Uh, it's no secret Doug and I are great friends. And this was something that we had some fun with because I've always uh, I've turned to him for advice on issues like this. And he's like, well, you want to get some hands hands-on experience. So we had some fun with it. He is uh, he was a great member of Congress and uh, he's, a, he's a good friend and I have nothing but the highest regard for him. Maybe, yeah, maybe you can bet like a T-bone or something like that on, <laughs> on whoever finishes That's a good thought. <laughs> we, we, we should uh, mention you're a big basketball fan, a uh, big Sacramento Kings fan. We're taping this on Thursday, a couple hours before the NBA draft. Let us, you know, give us Kevin Kiley's keys for, for avoiding a draft night disaster. And also, if you can mention, I, I hear you were a, a great free throw champion as a kid. Oh. <laughs> you know, this has come up in recent interviews. It's something I haven't talked about uh, forever. <laughs> but so I was cut from my high school basketball team. You know, I was that's all I did growing up was play basketball. I loved, I had my growth spurt late and I just wasn't good enough to play. <laughs> but then I entered this shooting competition put on by the NBA and it was a two-person thing and me and my partner just kept winning and winning and winning probably by sheer luck and so we made it to the NBA finals and competed on Nickelodeon and won oh the national God. championship in this NBA basketball shooting competition hey well if this whole recall <laughs> thing doesn't work out I think the Kings might might be giving you but, a call. you know it probably wouldn't be that hard to make the team these I'm a long-suffering Kings fan as you mentioned <laughs> all right Assemblyman Kevin Colley thank you so much for joining us appreciate my it my pleasure thanks for having me and that's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Toven Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Otis Taylor Jr., and Erica Aguilar. I'm Katie Orr. You can see what I'm up to on Twitter. I'm at one Katie Orr. And I'm Guy Marzarati. The last day to vote in the recall is September 14th. Have a great weekend, everyone.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Thanks.